0: Beloved congregation, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we consider this Lord's Day on the second petition of the Lord's Prayer in the light of Psalm 144. We have there in Psalm 144, in part anyway, a prayer for the kingdom of God. You can see that especially in the last verses of the psalm, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style, and so on. But this is also, we should notice, a prayer of the king himself. It is the king of the people who is praying for his people here. It is a psalm of David, the anointed of the Lord, and it is David praying first, then, for himself, as you see in um, Verse seven and eight, rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. So it's David praying for himself, but praying for himself, not privately, but praying for himself as the king And so that through the salvation that the Lord grants to him, the Lord's people, whom he has subdued under him, may also benefit. That comes out especially in the connection, of course, between verses 11 and 12. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, that our sons may be as pillars, as plants grown up in their youth. And because it is a prayer of David, the anointed of the Lord, the king of God's people, we may take it also as a prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ himself during his earthly ministry. It is he who celebrates here the salvation of the Lord for him. He who prays here, rescue me and deliver me from the hand of enemies, and who prays also in connection with that prayer that he makes for himself, for his own people, that our sons and our daughters may prosper. Now I've given to you a sheet that outlines the structure of this psalm, and you can see from that sheet that the psalm has a chiasm in it. In the first two verses of the psalm, we have an introductory section which has no parallel at the end of the psalm. But then the chiasm begins in verse 3 and goes through the rest of the psalm. So we have in verse 3 to verse 7a, those four and a half verses, a parallel to the four verses at the end of the psalm, nine lines in each of those sections. And there's a connection between them also, which we're going to talk about as we get to them. Then you have in the uh, next sections, the sections inside those two sections, that prayer of David for himself, set me free and caused me to escape. And this is repeated almost in the exactly the same words in verse 11. So 7b and 8 correspond exactly or almost exactly to verse 11. And then in the heart of this you have verses 9 and 10 where David sings, O God a new song I will sing to you who delivers David his servant from the evil sword. We consider the psalm therefore under the theme the king's prayer for himself and his people. And there are five things that we want to look at that correspond to the six sections of the psalm here. First blessing the Lord for help in war. That's verses 1 and 2. Secondly, Praying for the Lord to come down, verses 3 to 7a. Thirdly, praying for the Lord to rescue him, verses 7b to 8 and 11. Then praise for his salvation, verses 9 and 10. And finally, prayer for his people, verses 12 to 15. Now, one of the things that ought to strike us immediately about this uh, psalm, and especially the first verses of this psalm, is that it uh, uh, is very similar in some ways to the first two verses of Psalm 18. You have that description of the Lord in verse 2, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge. And if you look at Psalm 18, you will see that it begins in a very similar way. I love. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And we'll notice as we work our way through Psalm 144 that there are other parallels between these two psalms as well. They're closely related. They're both Psalms of David, and and both of them use some of the same language. But there's also a very significant difference between these Psalms. In the heading of Psalm 18, we read that this was a Psalm that David spoke to the Lord on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So David has, throughout most of his reign, been fighting against the enemies, his own enemies, and the enemies of God's people. And he has now, in Psalm 18, achieved the end of his wars. He has defeated the enemies of his people, and he is celebrating, then, at the end of his wars, all the victories that the Lord has given him during that time of battle but here in psalm 144 we find david in the midst of his wars david is not yet has not yet achieved that peace which he celebrates in psalm 18 and so we read in uh, verse 7 rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of foreigners he's still in the midst of his wars That's the essential difference then between 144 and 18. Here he prays in the midst of his battles, and there he celebrates the Lord's victories for him after the battles are over. Though David now prays in the midst of war here in Psalm 144, he nevertheless expresses a very strong confidence in the Lord. There is none of that fear or that sorrow or that despair or that trouble that David expresses in some of the other psalms. It's not found here in this psalm. This is a psalm which celebrates the goodness of the Lord to him, the help of the Lord for him in the midst of these wars. Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. It's a psalm that's as much a psalm of Praise, as it is a psalm of petition. And as we noticed already, the central element in verses 9 and 10 is an element of praise. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. Now let's look then at the details of verses 1 and 2 we notice in the first place that in verse 1, David calls the Lord his rock. And to get at the idea of that, we should recognize in the first place that there are a couple of Hebrew words that are translated that, as rock. But the one we have here is one we can learn about, I think, especially from Psalm 27, another psalm of David. Psalm 27, verse 5, where he says, He shall set me high upon a rock. That word rock is the same one we have here. And it really means an elevated rock, like a cliff, for example. And what David is celebrating here, therefore, is not only that God has given to him a safe place for his feet to stand, a place where his feet can have firm footing, but that God has set him on this high rock, which is above the heads of his enemies and which his enemies cannot reach. God has set him out of the way of danger from his enemies, therefore. Has lifted him above the ability of his enemies to do him harm. That's what he means by that word rock here. The Lord provides for him security against his enemies. And this theme then continues in verse 2. Notice that in the first three lines of verse 2, you have three pairs of words. Loving kindness and fortress in the first pair. High tower and deliverer in the second pair. Shield and the one in whom I take refuge in the third pair. In each one of those pairs is a word that celebrates the Lord being his defense. That is really parallel to that idea of the rock in verse 1. My fortress, my high tower, my shield. The Lord is not only his rock, that is the rock on which he is able to stand above his enemies, but the Lord is also his fortress to which he can flee for safety from his enemies. The Lord is his high tower, a tower of defense. Against the attacks of his enemies. The Lord is his shield, the one who protects him from all the fiery darts of his enemies. In all these things, then, the Lord is preparing, is protecting him from the attacks of his enemies. But notice as well that in the other member of each of those three pairs, in verse 2, David looks at this whole subject of the Lord's care for him a little differently. The Lord is first, he says, my loving kindness. That's a very unusual thing for him to say. The Psalms everywhere celebrate the loving kindness of the Lord, but they don't use this language, my loving kindness. The Lord is my loving kindness, he says. And what he means by that is that the Lord is all the good that he has. Everything good that belongs to him has come to him from the Lord. And it is because the Lord is towards him a God of loving kindness. As he walks and lives with this Lord that has made him king, he knows the goodness of this Lord towards him. He is his loving kindness. He's surrounded on every side by the loving kindness of the Lord. not the kind of expression that you would expect to find in, in battle terms, in battle metaphors. And yet a very important thing for David, that even in the midst of the battle, he can celebrate the goodness of the Lord to him. He is my loving kindness. In the second place, he is my deliverer, the second line. And that The word deliverer means then that not only has God become his fortress where he can take refuge from his enemies, but that the Lord has, as it were, snatched him out of the hand of his enemies and brought him into that fortress. The Lord delivered him, therefore, from the power of his enemies. And because the Lord is his defense, therefore, his loving kindness and his deliverer, He then, in the last pair, says of him, he is the one in whom I take refuge. He always, therefore, flees to this Lord in all the troubles that beset him, in all the battles that he has to fight. But there's more that we have to look at also in verse 1. And there David really talks in terms of the... um, offensive war, which he has to fight against his enemies. He has celebrated the Lord as his defense, as his deliverer, as the one in whom he takes refuge. But he also celebrates the Lord as the one who trains him to fight, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. The Lord, in other words, does not just call him to fight these battles on behalf of his people and his kingdom, but the Lord also trains him for his fighting so that he is very well prepared for the wars the Lord has given to him to to fight. And we have a parallel to this too in Psalm 18. We should look at that for a moment. David is, uh, I think, again here, using similar language to remind us of this psalm. Psalm 18, verses 32 to 36. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. In all these ways then that God has prepared him for the battles he has to fight. And we should be, as we look at those verses, both in Psalm 144 and in Psalm 18, reminded of the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 6, where he exhorts us to put on the whole armor of God, to equip ourselves with the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, and to take in our hand the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The Lord equips us also For battle, though the battle is for us a spiritual one rather than a physical one. And finally, in these verses, notice that David talks about the Lord being the one who subdues my people under me. And David is not here talking about his enemies, he does that in Psalm 18. In Psalm 18, towards the end of that psalm, uh, we read exactly that, verses 43 and 44 of Psalm 18. David talks about how the Lord subdues his enemies. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. But here, David is celebrating the fact that the Lord has set him up as king over his own people, the people of Israel, who subdues my people under me. And the point that David is making is that it was the Lord who set him on his throne. And when you read the history of David, that's very obvious, of course. It was God who chose him as king when he was just an unknown and obscure shepherd boy, uh, basically uh, counted even as nothing by his own family. It was God who, through the prophet Samuel, anointed him to be king in Saul's place. God who led him through all the years of his favor with Saul in the wars that he fought against the Philistines, including Goliath. It was God who preserved him from the enmity of Saul, and God who gave to him all the victories over the Philistines and the other enemies of Israel. It was God, finally, then, who led the people of Israel to accept David as king. David could truly say it was the Lord who subdued his people under him. David had not exerted himself to become the king of Israel. He had not had this ambition. He had not pushed himself forward. He had not tried in any way to usurp Saul. In fact, he had protected Saul's life, even in the years when Saul was persecuting him. And when the time came for him to actually assume the throne, he did not thrust himself forward and and impose himself upon the tribes of Israel, but waited seven and a half years for the house of Saul to be brought to an end, and for all the tribes of Israel to accept him. The Lord had subdued his people under him. Now we said in the beginning that this is also a prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. It is he then whom we see confessing that the Lord is his rock, That the Lord was the one who trained his hands for war and his fingers for battle. That the Lord was his defense, his loving kindness, his deliverer, the one in whom he took refuge. That the Lord was and is even now subduing his people under him. As he sends out the gospel to the nations and brings his own people into obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. so it is the lord then along with david who blesses the lord his rock blessed be the lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle let's move on then to verses 3 to 7 a 3 to 7 a where we have this prayer for the lord to come down Now, this begins, this a part of the psalm begins in a very striking way. The prayer for the Lord to come down does not, is not found until verse 5. In verses 3 and 4, instead, instead, David says, What is man, that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man, that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Now, the first thing you ought to notice about those verses is that they, too, recall other psalms of David. The first of those verses recalls Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? You make him a little lower than the angels. You crown him with glory and honor. And Hebrews 2 takes that psalm and applies it to our Lord Jesus Christ and says, Look, the Lord made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. This is his confession as well as the confession of David, as well as our confession. The confession of the citizens of the kingdom. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you are mindful of him? We are nothing. He says, why should you pay attention to us? In fact, it's almost as if David looks at what the Lord has done for him as described in verses 1 and 2, and he says, is there any value in the work you have done for me? How little, how insignificant I am. Why should you pay any attention at all to me? Why should you waste your efforts on such a fragile and fleeting creature as man? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow And there. We have language from another psalm of David, Psalm 39. Psalm 39, uh, where David confesses the fragility and brevity of man in very strong language. But notice especially the uh, words at the end of verse 5. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor or breath. Surely... Every man walks about like a shadow. The fragility and brevity of man's life. What is man that you are mindful of him? He's just a vapor and his days a passing shadow. A shadow fleeing across the face of the ground as the wind above blows it. Blows the clouds, rather. But, David is not discouraged by this fact. He confesses that the Lord has taken knowledge of him, has been mindful of him, and has been mindful of his people who are just like himself. And he prays then, notice his prayer, he prays, very strong prayer for himself and his people. Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch your hand from above. In other words, this little creature, this creature who is but a breath and whose days like a passing shadow, calls upon the Lord his God, that great God who is exalted above the heavens, to come down on his behalf. Bow down your heavens. Come down. Touch the mountains and make them smoke. Flash forth your lightnings. Shoot out your arrows. Stretch out your hand for me. Against my enemies. He uses language that's reminiscent, of course, of the appearance of the Lord on Mount Sinai, especially. Reveal yourself to me, he says, as you revealed yourself to your people Israel on Mount Sinai. When you came down on the mountain in fire and thunder and smoke and darkness and showed to the people the power of your presence. Let me see that same presence. He's talking about such works as the Lord did in Egypt when he sent the hail and the lightning in the seventh plague. Or such works as he did for Joshua and the army of Israel when they were fighting against the Canaanites. And we read in Joshua 10 verse 11 that the Lord sent great hailstones that killed more of the Canaanites than the Israelites themselves killed with a sword. He's praying for the revelations of God's power such as he gave to Deborah and Barak when the stars in their courses fought for them and the brook Kishon swept away the horses and chariots of Jabin and Sisera. Come down, he says, and fight. I'm your king, the king you have appointed, but I cannot win and I cannot fight the battles unless you come down and help me. Reveal to us your great power and give to us the victory. And again, David uses language, which is very similar to language found in Psalm 18. In Psalm 18, verses 9 and following, he says um, this, Psalm 18, verses 9 and following, He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the water of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. And then notice what follows. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. The same language we find in the next part of the psalm. So what David is saying in Psalm 18 is, he answered this prayer, which I made in Psalm 144. I prayed for him to come down, and he did. I prayed for him to touch the mountains and make them smoke, and he did. I prayed for him to shoot out his arrows, and he did shoot them out. I prayed for him to stretch out his hand from above, and he did, and rescued me from the great waters. So Psalm 18 is then, in a way, a celebration of the Lord's answer to David's prayers here in Psalm 144. So that brings us then to the third part of the psalm and to David's prayer for himself. It begins in verse 7. Notice how he, in verses 5 and 6, in the first line of verse 7, speaks in not of himself, but in general terms. But then suddenly in verse 7, it becomes a very personal matter. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me. He's concerned for himself. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters. Now that part of Psalm uh, verse 7 and verse 8 are exactly the same, except for one phrase, as verse 11. The words in Hebrew as well as in English are exactly the same in verses 7 and 8 and then verse 11. Except for the one phrase in verse 7 where he says, Deliver me out of great waters. That's the only difference between those verses. Now the waters are a metaphor for his enemies. David imagines himself among his enemies as a man who is uh, caught in a great and turbulent sea. The waves are all around him, the waves are towering over him, the waves are crashing on his head. He is about to be overwhelmed and completely uh, destroyed by the great waters in which he finds himself. This is what his enemies were to him. His enemies were much mightier, much more numerous than he and his armies from all human perspectives, there was no hope for David to achieve victory over these enemies much or to be rescued from them. But he turns to the Lord in his troubles. He describes these enemies then in the next line, verse 7, as foreigners or better, as sons of a foreigner. Most of the translations ignore that word sons in the Hebrew. You'll find it in the King James Version and in Young's Literal Translation, but not in any of the other commonly used translations. But David says here, and in verse 11 as well, from the hand of the sons of a foreigner. And I think we shouldn't ignore that fact. I think we shouldn't ignore that fact because... First of all, we we take the word foreigners to refer to the fact that these are people who are from outside the land of Israel. These are then people like the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Syrians, and so on, those enemies whom David overcame during his uh, reign as king of Israel. But when we read sons of a foreigner, I think... What we see there is that David is also thinking about certain foreigners who were within the nation of Israel. People like Doeg, the Edomite, who killed the priests of Nob at the command of Saul, and other foreigners within the nation of Israel who opposed David as king and and did not want to see him take the throne. It may even be that by speaking of sons of a foreigner, here he really is using a kind of spiritual description of Israelites who were not really Israel, who hated him and who opposed him in his kingship. People like Shimei, the relative of Saul, or people like Cush the Benjamite, who's mentioned in the, first, uh, in the introduction to the Psalm, to Psalm 7. Or even people like Absalom, who uh, tried to destroy David and take the kingship from him. These are all, in some sense of the word, sons of a foreigner. And David seeks rescue from the Lord for their opposition. He talks about them, notice too, in verse 8, as those who use their mouths against him. Another interesting thing, he doesn't talk about them using the sword against him, he talks about them using their mouths against him. His mouth speaks lying words the lying words of Shimei, or the lying words of Ahithophel, or the lying words of Absalom. All those people who opposed him by trying to undermine him with others. David complains about such people in Psalm 41 when he says, my enemies speak evil of me. When, when will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against the, me, they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. It's that kind of person It may even be that in the second line where he speaks of those whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood, that he's talking about those who have raised their right hand in swearing an oath of allegiance to him but have sworn falsely and betrayed him. Stretch out your hand, he says, from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of the Son's of a foreigner. But, and he repeats that, as we've already noticed in verse 11, but, notice what falls between those two statements, those two petitions that he makes for himself. Verses 9 and 10, the heart of the psalm, I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you, the one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. In other words, David is not greatly troubled, spiritually troubled, by the attacks of his enemies. He has confidence in the Lord his God and is able in the midst of his battles to sing to him a new song, this song as well as others, and to give praise to him on the harp of ten strings. Why? Because he knows this Lord as the one who gives salvation to kings. Now that's an interesting thing in itself. The Psalms celebrate in many different places, of course, The Lord's salvation for the poor, the afflicted, the weak, the humble, the widows, the orphans, and all those poor and weak people, vulnerable people, who are found often in the kingdom of God. But he is also the one who gives salvation to kings, to the mighty and the powerful who seek him. And David celebrates that fact here because he is the king who needs the Lord's help. And he is confident that this one who gives salvation to kings will also be the one who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. Therefore, he will sing his new song to his God and sing praises to him on the harp. That then is the fourth part of the psalm. Finally, we look at the verses 12 to 15 where David prays for his people. Now the first thing to notice about this is the connection with verse 11. David prays for himself in verse 11, rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners. But he prays for himself not so that just he himself may benefit, but also so that his people may benefit, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. He is praying for himself as king, and he is praying for his people as citizens of the kingdom of God. And that's why, especially, I chose this psalm as an illustration of what we mean when we say, Thy kingdom come. Now the grammar of that verse, 12, is a complicated, or at least the first word of the verse, that, is a complicated thing. And there's been a lot of discussion in the commentaries about this. What's the connection it's not a simple that here and i think it's not a simple that i'm not going to go into the details of the grammar but it's not a simple that here because i think david wants us not only to connect this with verse 11 but also to connect it with verses 3 to or verses 5 to 7a he says in verses 5 to 7 bow down your heavens o lord and come down and it's clear that in verse 8 then, verse 7 and 8, that he's praying for himself. He wants the Lord to come down for himself. But the complexity of the grammar in verse 12 suggests that this also should be tied back to verse 7. Stretch out your hand from above, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth. So come down, come down for me, but come down also for your people. Let's look then at the blessings for which David prays. These are all covenantal blessings. He prays first of all for the Lord's blessing on their children. That our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth. The idea of that I think is that he wants the sons of the kingdom to grow up strong and fruitful in the Lord. We have an illustration of that in Psalm 92, verses 12 and following, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. Or in Psalm 1, he is like a tree planted by the rivers of water, whose leaf does not wither, brings forth its fruit in his seasons. Whatever he does shall prosper. He's praying for the strength and fruitfulness, then spiritual fruitfulness of the sons of the kingdom. And he also prays for the daughters. Now, the, the language that's used about the daughters here, you'll find some variations in the translations about it, but I think our New King James captures it pretty well that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. That is, that our daughters may be beautiful, as the pillars of the king's palace are beautiful, deliberately sculptured as adornments, not just as uh, um, pillars to uphold the palace, but as adornments for the palace. He wants the daughters to be beautiful. He's not talking, of course, about physical beauty. He's talking, rather, about that spiritual beauty, the adornment of a meek and quiet spirit, which is of great value in the sight of God. He's praying, then, here, as he prays for the sons and daughters, for the future of the kingdom. Not just for the kingdom as it exists now, but for the sons and the daughters of that kingdom to prosper in spiritual ways so that the kingdom may continue strong and beautiful before God. That first. In the second place, he prays for the prosperity of the kingdom, that our barns may be full, supplying all kinds of produce, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields, that our oxen may be well laden. And he's praying, of course, in terms of the land of Canaan, that land flowing with milk and honey, and in the same kind of terms that we find in Psalm 65 at the end of that psalm. He goes on quite at length about this in Psalm 65 You visit the earth and water it, you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water, you provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly, you settle its furrows, you make it soft with showers, you bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. He has the same kind of terms in Psalm 72. A prayer of Solomon, and a prayer of Solomon about the prosperity of the kingdom under the anointed king. Verse 16, there will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. These are earthly metaphors for the prosperity of the spiritual kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Her richness, her abundance, as the Lord feeds her with the bread and water of life and blesses her with spiritual blessings, all spiritual blessings from on high. So it's the prosperity of the kingdom then in that second part. And then finally he prays for the peace of the kingdom. That there be no breaking in. And what he means by that is that no enemies break through our walls or our gates to come in to our cities to kill and to destroy. There be no going out. There's disagreement among the commentators about this. Some think it means going out to fight. That is, do not make it necessary, David says, for us to be continually fighting. Give us security in our cities and peace in our cities and relieve us of the burdens Some think it means going out in captivity. Going out, being taken out, in other words, by the enemies from their own cities and places. But whatever, it still has to do with peace. And then finally, that there be no outcry in our streets. No wailing, no lamentation, no tears of sorrow. Because there is nothing any longer to mourn. Every tear has been wiped away, every trial finished, every battle fought and won. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. There is the essential blessedness of the kingdom that that people has for their God, Yahweh. I will be your God, he says. Happy is the people to whom he fulfills that promise. So it's David praying. David praying for the peace and prosperity and future of the kingdom of God. It's Christ praying in the midst of his battles with all his enemies, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, and the leaders of the Jews, and all those enemies who opposed him throughout all his life. Rescue me and deliver me, he says, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, our daughters as pillars sculptured in palace style. It's Christ praying, therefore, for the establishment of his kingdom. As he fights the battles of that kingdom, and this is what we pray, people of God, when we say, Thy kingdom come. That our sons may be as plants, grown up in their youth. That our daughters may be as pillars, sculptured in palace style. That our barns may be full. That there be no breaking in, or going out, or outcry in our streets. That, in a fact the Lord may be our God forever and ever until we inherit the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the proclamation of his word.